We return to our discussion with Mike Whitney on bringing light into darkness. We are discussing the implications of the Congressional Research Service report on U.S. complicity with terrorist actors in Syria. Enjoy. So the implications, particularly about the jihadist backbone of this deal, is shocking. You know, here we are talking about 9-11 and the loss of all of our great Americans and family members and all of that type of thing. And here we are with objective and detailed histories now that are completely ignored by the mainstream press that clearly indicate that this is a knowingly arming and training and providing support to these jihadist elements, much like we had done previously in what, 1980 with the Mujahideen that eventually were the ones that led to Osama bin Laden and the actual downing of our towers. So, you know, we call it the war on terror. But again, I just want to reiterate how important it is. If you look when the U.S. started its bombing raids in Syria, supposedly to go after ISIS, ISIS just got stronger during that whole period of time. Our whole war of terror until Russia got involved, like you said, there was more and more jihadists and there was many, many more powerful sectors throughout the, the Middle East, Syria and Iraq. So that was certainly one of these misrepresentations that we wanted to clear up on this show and get people to start thinking about. You know, let me interrupt you for yeah, a minute. You sure, know, I, mean, go ahead. I think our impression of, of Michael Flynn is different. I actually see him as kind of an uber nationalist who mm-hmm. was really naive and could not see. He didn't understand that this was the ultimate objective of the White House to create this salaf. I mean, he's going, he's scratching his head saying, why are we doing this? This is only going to bite us in the ass. And then what, what's actually happening is they're working towards that end. How is it that a guy like that can be in a position of power? I mean, he was head of the DIA and not know what actually the strategic objective of the project is. Mm-hmm. And that just uh, speaks to who he is as a person. You know, he's kind of an uber-patriot who thought that this was being done for nationalist purposes when it's really basically this kind of nefarious globalist project. So yeah, uh, it's just mind-boggling that he wouldn't be able to figure out what was going on, figure out what you just figured out on air, you know? I mean, that's all we're asking him to understand. It seemed to be beyond his grasp. I think it's a valid point. Let me just turn and have you comment on these polls, too, because, again, there's this perception that Assad has no support But actually, the political reform rallies in 2011, they were countered by the pro-government rallies and overshadowed then by the violent insurrection. But some of that was not necessarily anti-Bashar. Of course, the pro-government rallies weren't. And the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and other sectarian Islamist groups hated Assad, along with the secular state. Yet even polling from the heartland of such opposition recognized Assad's popularity and For instance, in a late 2011, a Doha, I guess that's Qatar, right? 2011 Doha-Qatar debates poll created by the Qatari monarchy, a major backer of the Muslim Brotherhood, showed over 50%, 55% of the Syrians wanted Assad to stay. When you go on further, uh, in 2012, Reuters, uh, the UK Guardian and Time magazine reported that three free Syrian army, the FSA leaders in Aleppo, saying that the President Assad had about 70% support of the local people. And there's a poll over 80% of Syrians believe U.S. created ISIS. 
This is conducted by the research firm, the ORB, the Orb International. The survey questioned some 1,365 Syrians throughout the country on matters regarding the Islamic State and the nation's ongoing turmoil. Uh, this is in 2015. 81%, 81% of the Syrians polled believe that ISIL is a foreign American-made group, the survey says. So we completely ignore and are completely ignorant of how Syrians think because we don't get our information from Syrians in Syria. We get them from these little groups that are uh, so in bed with U.S. foreign policy interests. And and so the last poll I just wanted to highlight, it was an in-country face-to-face or poll conducted in May of 2014 arrived at similar conclusions and found that more Syrians believe the Assad government best represented their interests and aspirations than any opposition group that we were supporting. The The U.S., that is. And according to the poll, only 6% believe that the genuine rebels represented their interests and aspirations, while the National Coalition Transitional Government, a U.S.-promoted entity, drew even less support at 3%. So I just find that striking. And, and we have these elections that he wins overwhelmingly, and then we claim they're all rigged. So from the perspective of the Syrians themselves, you mentioned all of the refugees that left Syria. So many lined up wanting to vote in these elections did that Assad had won such you know landslide margins with what, what what do you make of that of that polling well some of it's a little bit deceptive because you remember after 9-11 george w bush was uh his popularity was like around 90 percent so mm-hmm. you know when you're under attack and when you're a war then naturally your leader is going to be a little more popular but i think the numbers after this long period and the suffering that people have had to endure i think his uh, popularity is actually quite real you know i mean He's a very unassuming, sensitive, he's an ophthalmologist by trade. His brother was supposed to be the president, and his brother died in a, a car crash. He was like a, an aficionado of racy cars, and he crashed and he died, and they called him back from England, where he was, uh, but he's, he's kind of a reserved, shy person by nature, and then he was thrown into this thing. You know, a lot like Putin was thrown into his, you know, he kind of slipped in through the back door as well. You know, so I can understand his topic. He's very soft-spoken, but he's very well-spoken. He's extremely articulate, and he's extremely, has a lot of resolve, steely resolve, and he's seen this very tragic period through for 10 years of this, and they were at their wit's end. The whole state was about to collapse before Russia stepped in and decided to shore it up and give it a you know, second life. So he's kind of a bit of a miracle worker, so it's not, it doesn't surprise me at all that he's popular. When things settle down, you'll probably see the more traditional divisions in the political system. But for now, I think the popularity is quite real. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, they're they're fighting some tremendous forces, and you basically can't buy any of the commodities we can get over here just because of the United States. It's always like if we can't beat you, we're almost just sanction you to death, which is uh, basically what what we've done to Cuba for sixty years. So, you know, the same rule applies here. But they're they're tough people. I guess what I'm trying to get at, too, though, is the fact that I think the people that have the closest understanding and can see through the the propaganda and get much, much closer to the truth than we're getting here in the United States are the people of Syria, that they actually, they did see what the real opposition groups were really all about and, mm-hmm. that, they, and that they were serving not their interests, but the interests of U.S. foreign policy. And, and that's why that polling was so one-sided. But, I, I, you know, I do agree with you when you're under conflict and you're under the gun like they have. But at the other hand, 
they have been just about strangled to death as a country economically, yet they mm-hmm. still continue to be able to project and see that the real source of those issues is not its own government, but it's the world community led by the United States and the West that refused to relent in Syria and now have replaced bombs with, what, sanctions to a large degree. It's kind of funny when you, if you read uh, the Western media on what's happening in Syria, mm-hmm. they never point out that it's really hard to make the case that it's a civil war when one side you have Uyghurs, Chechens, and Libyans fighting to topple the government. I mean, right. how do you make the case that these are nationalist patriots that are fighting to restore their own government or democracy in Syria? Right. These people are from all over the place. And who has the power and the resources to get those people? Remember, the name Al-Qaeda itself means database. So, I mean, it refers to the vast database that the CIA has for these yahoos since the 1970s. So that's basically what's happening. And these are the, this is the only organization in the world that has the power to draw these people together. And that's exactly what occurred, and I guess that's what caused Russia to react so strongly and purposefully, is that this is in their part of the world, and you have this explosion of these jihadists coming from all over the world down into Syria being organized, as you say, by our own intelligence sources and through Saudi Arabia uh, and through uh, Qatar and these other Gulf monarchies. I think Russia must have acted not just in the interest of an ally, namely Syria, but in their own interest of saying, wait a minute, man, we, these people are going to be at our doorsteps. We've had these problems in our own country as well. Before you respond to that, though, let me just, I found this one other context about when the United States got involved that takes us back a few years before that 2011 deal. It's an Al Jazeera piece. It was in April 8, 2011, called U.S. Funded Syria Opposition Groups. The U.S. government has secretly funded Syrian opposition groups for at least the last five years. That would be since 2006, including a London-based television station that we were referring to, Barada TV, according to diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks to the Washington Post. The newspaper reported on Monday that the U.S. State Department was channeled some $6 million since 2006 to a group of Syrian exiles to operate that Barada TV and to finance activities inside Syria. The television station is closely affiliated with the Movement for Justice and Development. That's a London-based network of Syrian exiles, the paper said, and has ramped up operations to cover the mass protests in Syria. It added that U.S. money for Syrian opposition groups began under George Bush, the former U.S. president, after ties with Damascus were frozen in 2005. So again, the the idea that, that the whole problem in Syria got started by Assad in 2011 and how he dealt with protests is completely bogus, that we've been pointed in that oh, direction. Oh, yeah, it's not only completely bogus. I mean, the hypocrisy is just beyond. I mean, here you are, you've reoriented your whole national security state and your military, so it's fighting this imaginary war on terror, and at the same time, you're arming, training, and supplying these guys who are terrorists. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing is laughable, but people... I think the majority of people actually have some inkling that this is what's going on and they just ignore it because they're powerless to change anything. Yeah, and lastly, the other thing that we mentioned at the beginning of the show that we wanted to get to is the issue of that 2013 Algolta gas attack. At the very time, we questioned it on this show and continued to question it, and we never saw the evidence that supported the claims that John Kerry in front of Congress 
made with absolute certainty to our, our, our Congress in, in, in his bid to represent the administration of Obama and get the Congress to endorse bombing of Syria, which they did not. And he said with absolute certainty that this is John Kerry, that it was uh, Assad that was responsible for that uh, August attack. Um, and since then, as we continue to question that, Recently, within the last, oh, I'd say six months or so, I think it's it's a group called Root.Claim uh, came out with 96% certainty said it was the jihadists, these terrorists that were trying to provoke the United States to get involved and therefore would reverse the conditions on the ground after, as you said, the Russians came in and reversed the conditions on the ground highly in favor of of Assad. So here, it's just unbelievable. If you go back to that period of time, you know, these guys like John Kerry are swearing up and down with absolute certainty. And he made many misrepresentations and lies to Congress that we've done a whole show on in the past on, but it's completely ignored and uncovered by the West. Let me ask you, when you look at the Russian relationship there now presently, and when you look at the conditions, what we haven't talked about, Mike, and I thought you could share your insights on it, is we are occupying parts uh, of the oil-rich areas of Syria with U.S. Uh, with U.S. troops. And of course, no one dares harm those troops because then that would provoke a huge U.S. response, right? Everybody mm-hmm. would want to bomb the bejesus out of them or whatever. But can you frame that for us? Well, there's, there are still skirmishes now. If you know, the, you know how, how it's set up topographically, the Euphrates runs north to south, and uh, about a third of the country is on the eastern side, which is where the United States has joined with the Kurds to occupy that territory, which is the oil-rich part of the country. You know, bully for Putin, because he always, you know, people are saying, well, Putin's going to straighten things out, and he's going to push the United States out of there. And people, you're thinking to yourself, you know, that would involve, or that would trigger World War Three. So he has behaved very rationally, and in a measured way. And uh, he has restrained himself and stayed on the other side of the western side of the river. But that just means that this war is going to go on basically forever, but because there's kind of an iron curtain between the two armies. It's costly for the United States to maintain the occupation, but Russia, having only offered its uh, air force, is on a sustainable path for doing what it's been doing for the last five years. It can keep going forever, so it's not really costly for them, and, and it's certainly worth the Effort. Well, let me ask you this. For me, what I look at when I'm looking at this Syrian situation right now is I'm looking at a country that we demonize all the time, namely Russia, that's there in Syria at the invitation of the Syrian government, which makes it completely a legal type of relationship mm-hmm. and, and um, an alliance, an ally, if you will. You flip the script. The United States is not only have we promoted this terrible civil and uh, non-civil war, but it has killed, what, close to half a million people now. But we're occupying without the authority of the Syrian government, the elected government, and the recognized government throughout the world. So we are completely have the appearance of a bully that through our powerful military, we're going to do whatever we want. We don't care what anyone says, but somehow the American public believe we're in pursuit of democracy and protecting the democratic interest in Syria. Your comments? Well, let me expand on that a little bit, because the United States is basically pissing off everyone in the region because they have created a de facto Kurdish state 
in an area that is surrounded by other countries that have Kurdish problems, like the Iranians, like the Turks, and like the Iraqis. All of these have large populations of Kurds. Now the United States has thrown their lot with the Kurds and created a de facto Kurdish state, which provokes all those ethnic groups in those respective states. So this has angered the people tremendously, particularly Turkey, that warned the United States repeatedly not to do this. It is in the interest of Israel, which, as you can understand, the rest of the countries hate the fact that Israel supports this Kurdish state. So while Putin sits back and he's steady and reserved and you know deliberate in his approach, the United States is erratic, it's pissing people off, and it's basically a provocative uh, occupation. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how long they can sustain this, but right now there's skirmishes on both sides, but the ultimate loss for the United States would not be the loss in Syria. It would be a loss if Turkey flips into Russia's camp, because Turkey is basically, if you look at it geopolitically, it is the state the United States cannot afford to lose. It's the gateway into Asia, and the United States wants to be a big player in the Asian economy in the next century. So were they to lose the sympathies of someone like Erdogan, then we're in really big trouble. So that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, and that's a good analysis and, and, and such. And I want to remind people we've been visiting with Mike Whitney, investigative journalist. we just got a few minutes left here. And the other concern that that I have, and it's all tied to one thing, which is just the incredible pain and suffering that our foreign policy has created in Syria, and not just Syria, but this this show is about Syria tonight, so that's why we were focused here, and the sanctions that are going on, and the issues of, of lack of water in many of these areas as well. I think right now there's also a huge drought going on that's affecting the area as, as well. When you think about the sanctions, have you been following the impact of the sanctions on Syria? Do you have any comments about just sanctions in general that the United States well, uses? Well, I mean, it's it? always surprising when you realize there's no you know, sort of you know, inhuman act that the United States won't inflict on people to achieve its foreign policy objectives. Again, you know, keeping people from getting essential medications or diabetics from getting their insulin or something like that, it's not a trivial matter, and people's lives are ruined by those sorts of things, and, and yet there are onerous restrictions that make these people, uh, people's lives, the average people, working people, you know, mm-hmm. not politically involved at all, suffer enormously. And like Madeleine Albright said so breezily, you know, I mean, uh, we think the price is worth it. Well, it's not worth it to the people of uh, Syria, I'll tell you that. Really, it's just, we just don't ever relent in our foreign policy. If we can't undermine and create political organizations in these countries that will come to power, that will serve our interests as we perceive them, then we move towards other types of conflict, including what you see here with the arming well, of, of these... Well, yeah, just, uh, look at, just look at Cuba. I mean, it just goes on forever. There's no attempt to normalize relations after all these years. Every other country in the world supports normalizing relations with them, except the United States. That speaks volumes about our foreign policy. It, it, it does, and what also speaks volumes about our dilemma here is that the American public is not irate because the American public has not been told the truth about these issues that we're talking about. That's true. You know, today, and so there's impressions that Americans have that make them think that 
these sanctions in these different countries are worthy in some form or fashion. And, mm-hmm. and they're not. And they'd kill. And they result in hundreds of thousands of lost life years annually throughout the world. In fact, the Venezuelan ambassador to the United Nations, Samuel Moncada, speaking to the 18th summit of the non-aligned movement held in Baku, Azerbaijan, on October 26, 2019, he was addressing the 120 countries represented, and he denounced the imposition of arbitrary measures called sanctions by the United States as, quote, economic terrorism, which affects a third of humanity with more than 8,000 measures in 39 different countries, end quote. This terrorism, he said, constitutes, quote, a threat to the entire system of international relations and is the greatest violation of human rights in the world, end quote. That's what I would encourage our listeners to do is just check out the impact of these sanctions on third countries. Listen, Mike, before we let you go, where can people access some of your written work? I can usually find me at Global Research or the UNS Review, sometimes over at Information Clearinghouse, mostly the off-the-beaten-track publishers. Well, we're going to have to have you back on at some point. I know that you've been doing a lot of work around the COVID crisis in the world and have a strong alternative presentation there that I think is worth doing a show and discussing more. Here we have in our own country, we have less than 5% of the world's population and I think close to 20% of the deaths. So that's another issue, the way we've completely, completely mismanaged this deal. Um, exactly. But anyhow, Mike Whitney, investigative reporter, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and insights tonight and always look forward to having you back down the road. Yeah, thank you for having me, Pedro. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Look forward to learning together into the future. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the Internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity.
Come 